You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It started raining, then pouring like divine plan of what was coming to repair the earth for all the blood that could soak into it. More lightning cracked across the sky and thunder rolled in the heavens. Justice would be dealt that night, and the instrument of restitution was in the form of Detroit Blue. Welcome to Episode 2 of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days Podcast. I'm your host, producer-director, Donnie L. Betts. Destination Freedom is a radio drama series recorded live in front of a studio audience, which is then followed by a community discussion about the subject of the play and a musical guest. Destination Freedom is an audio journey through the black experience in America and other unheard voices. Now, the original Destination Freedom came to be in 1948 and ended its run in 1950. All the shows were written by Radio Hall of Fame writer Richard Durham. I've revived the shows in 1998, and I've been producing the series ever since. When first produced, the series walked a daring line between reform and revolution and was shut down by its network in 1950 because of its pro-black stance and McCarthyism tightened its grip on America broadcast. This season, join us as we will explore the intersection of law enforcement and communities of color, exploring police shootings, immigration, and gender bias. Destination Freedom Episode 2, The Dark Legend of Detroit Blue. Written by Hugo Sales, with musical guest, Lionel Young. It was 1933 in Detroit, Michigan. Legends can be born, even in lowly places. Evil needs create evil intentions. This here is the story of a dark soul. Detroit Blue had walked down murderers rose so many times that this day would be his knife. Our killer lived in the darkness of places like dim hallways, poised for murder. In the dimness of the doorway, we hear a soft <clears throat> as he drove his blade home. Wrong target. Very wrong. He felt he needed to be something, someone else, not a killer. Never a killer, never Detroit Blue. But evil, always find evil. Destination Freedom Black Radio Days is a copyrighted program of No Credits Production, LLC. Destination Freedom. Oh, freedom. this episode of Destination Freedom, we hear the dark legend of Detroit Blue. It's the dark side of Detroit around about 1961 or 62. Next, a shave, and I want it close. Mr. Thoreau wants a shave, and he wants it close. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Come on, Mr. Troy. It's just Eric. You know, man. I know, young man. How are you, Mr. Eric? Oh, I'm as good as a Negro with the world on his shoulders. <laughs> Ain't that about everybody in this shop? <laughs> hey, Mr. Troy, tell me one of your old porch tales. I mean, those old barber chair lies. You know, the ones I like. Lies? <laughs> yeah, come on, Troy. Tell a tale. Yeah, he got the best shaves and the best tails. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, okay, come on, okay. come on, Troy. Tell all right, all right, all right. Let me think, let me think. Okay. <clears throat> okay, here's one. I ain't told y'all. When old Henry Ford bought the making of the automobile to Detroit, kicked his whole thing off. At first, Negro folks couldn't get the jobs in his old factories, but them factories started being booming, and the need for workers superseded the color line. Five dollars a day and 40 hours a work week, that was the thing. So Negroes could afford finer things and darker things, too. Darker things that existed only after midnight and places with sleazy little back rooms mustered with exotic and erotic odors that were only pleasing to the unsated. Evil needs create evil intentions. Legends can be born even in these lowly places. There were murmurs of atrocities being done all connected to this one man. This here is the story of his dark soul. It was 1933 right here in Detroit, Michigan about midsummer. The heat was oppressive, but it was so much hotter in the ways of evil doing. Our killer lived in the darkness of places like alleyways and dim hallways. In him was a disconnect from everyone and everything, purely a harbinger of death. Down Benton Street in the middle of the color part of town, his heart was pounding and he was angry. But he was always angry. Everybody could read his fury off of his posture, his stride, but mostly his demeanor. People crossed the street away from him without even knowing why. Perhaps it was a chill they felt creeping up their spines like someone had stepped on their grave. Evil men with ruthless intentions feared him because on the wrong day, he'll kill him just as soon as he take payment to kill someone else. The man was quick and light of foot, and though he was wiry, he was very strong, but he was deadlier of the mind. Good with the pistol, he could shoot you between the eyes at 50 paces in a strong crosswind. But his weapon of choice was his knife, because with it, he was lethal. With his quick hands and a dead-on accuracy, his love for the closeness of the knife and the turning of the blade into the heart, it was the only intimate thing that he truly knew, a bad business. If someone needed killing, they came to him. Now, he had no feeling about taking a life. This man always spoke in whispers, but he was clearly heard, and better yet, never misunderstood. This was a dark legend of Detroit Blue. Oh man, there's men like that now. I know one. Greg Mason, leader of the Dice Men. They like to use knives just like old Detroit Blue. How God make men like that? God ain't make Detroit Blue. It was a bad hand of life that shaped Detroit Blue when he came to be. A simple, bad turn of fate. Detroit Blue had been on his own since he was 10 years old, and he killed a man that year. That was his first. At eight years old, his mama, Nadine, died right before his eyes. She got a bad infection from a small cut on her foot. That little boy sat with his mama at her foot as it turned rotten. They rushed her to the nearest hospital, and she kept saying she didn't want to go, but they carried her there anyway. The white hospital wouldn't see her because she was colored. She died on that dirty street in front of a... That fancy white hospital. That's how his papa put it. Two years later... 
his papa was stabbed to death. The papa, the boy heard his papa died over a good play of bones in a game of dominoes. And even then, they weren't playing for cash. One fella thought papa played too good and stabbed him to death. His papa friend said it happened so fast they couldn't do anything except not get stabbed themselves. A day after his papa got killed, Little Blue caught up with that fella taking a leak in the alley and returned the favor. Lying in it, that man died, looking up at that mean-ass ten-year-old standing over him with a knife. You killed my papa, mother. They call him Little Blue. A few years passed, and he got really good at doing the deed and never be seen. Since some call him Killer Blue. Somebody called him Detroit Blue, and it stuck. In 1924, Detroit was about 15. He got hired to kill another colored hitman. The other fellow was quick, too, and got off a shot before Detroit stuck him in the heart. The bullet caught Detroit near his left temple and shot up his temple. The wound looked worse than it was, but it left a permanent scar and became known as part of the legend. Dark folks on the east side knew about that tale, the myth, the ghost that lived in the darkness called Detroit Blue, and regular folks thought he was the devil incarnated and never spoke his name, too afraid to invoke misfortune. Truth be told, ordinary folks rarely saw the real Detroit Blue, and when they did see him, they didn't recognize who he was. The secret was only a few gangsters knew who the real Detroit Blue was, and they kept it quiet. Silently, he was paid for his services. The murders the underworld thought needed to happen. They played Detroit Blue well. White folks up in the big city tried not to see anything on the world of the dark folks. Well, we're all out of sight and out of mind, so even murderous soul like Detroit Blue was non-existent. Oh man, we still invisible. White folks don't want to see the evil happening down to us down here, or the pain that plagues our neighborhoods. Mm, except near a crime, then we all guilty. Yeah, the whole community's to blame. If I got killed, these white folks wouldn't notice nothing. White folks put us in voluntary blind spot. Seeing it that way is easiest. We're all wicked, but blind to the good that lives down here too. An involuntary blind spot. Voluntary vines blind spot. I like that term. Hey, your friend Greg Mason. Nah, 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 he ain't my friend. He wants to kill me. Sweat rolled down Detroit Blue's brow, stopping for a brief moment to find a way over to the slightly keloid scar that went from his left temple to his nostril. With or without the scar, Detroit Blue was one mean SOB that took no stuff from anyone. That kind of nigga that nobody messed with if they wanted to live to see another day. The professional hitman promised his client, Robbie Collins, in a back room whisper, You can't talk with a knife in your heart. You cold-blooded, Detroit. But that's what I like about you. You kill anybody, anything. Deployed Blue had walked murderous way so many ways on this day would be his knife. Looking at the damp walls in the old apartment house, it was normal for summertime in Michigan. He noticed a sour, sort of rotten kind of smell, the odor of poor folks living too close together. The darkness in the narrow hallway was due to the fact that Detroit had put the light out. He saw his target run up to the door and fumble with her keys, trying to get into her apartment on the quick. But she was too slow and too late. He caught her in the dimness of the doorway, and he heard a soft, <sighs> as he drove his blade home. As he turned the knife, she whimpered, and she started to bleed out. He started to leave when something made him look back. She was just a teenager, maybe 13 or 14, 
pretty girl with light brown skin, clearly too young to be a target, a woman in her 30s. The wrong target. Not the target. Oh, no. It won't stop. It won't stop. She tried to hold her small hands over the wound. Detroit Blue moved back to the innocent girl so the child could see him. He stared right into her frightened eyes. Don't tell Mommy. I'm sorry. Please don't tell Mommy. She pleaded like she had done something wrong. Not the target. A voice in the back of his mind. It won't stop. Don't tell my... Mommy. Detroit softly said. The girl ceased to be. Quiet now, her eyes were dull and half-closed, a lifeless lump, where only a moment earlier there was fear. Profound fear. Now, nothing. Detroit stood there for a beat or two and maybe three or four, and then he took a step back and still stared at the girl. Unfortunate. Patience. Detroit thought he had stepped deeper into the shadow. He would have to wait to stick the right target, the girl's mama, he guessed. And he waited. Not long. The mama ran up and found her daughter dead in the doorway. Oh, no! Please, God! No, I told him I ain't gonna say nothing to nobody. Oh, no! Slowly, Detroit Blue moved up to the grieving mama. He was ready to plunge his knife deep into her throat. When the thought occurred to him, I already did. That little girl. Her baby was her heart. Detroit Blue stayed his knife and stood silently. Oh, my baby. My little girl, no. Oh, Wells hit Detroit Blue in a place he never knew he had. Somewhere deep in his soul, the child killer snuck away unseen and unheard. One of the skills he had honed over the years. It must have shook him hard because he was a few blocks away and he could still hear the mama cries, or could he? Now the little girl's eyes haunted him as well, filling his mind with images of the murdered child tripping and ricocheting all around and around his head. He had stopped in the middle of the sidewalk and stood there much longer than for the sake of sanity. Sanity? But what is sanity when you're a child killer? Something deep within him had broken, shattered into a thousand shards in his mind. The evil of his ways had come home and it confused him, haunted him, and shut him down. He sat on the curb with his head down until deep into the night. The sun had risen and then reached past noon. Detroit Blue was still on the curb, and he went back to the gangster Robbie Collins and cut his throat. Now, Robbie was somebody important with a good piece of dough, but it didn't matter as he fell in the floor in front of Detroit Blue. The henchmen that were around Robbie that day were too slow to react and died by Detroit's knife. Detroit Blue stood over their bodies feeling nothing. But there were echoes. Don't tell, Mommy. Detroit Blue took all the loot he had in the place, about $3,000, which was quite substantial in colored people's terms, maybe in everybody's everybody's terms. I must be crazy listening to you talking about old Detroit Blue cutting niggas' throats and stuff. (laughs) You be shaving me. I can stop if you want me to. Here, I know I'll be all right. Now out there in them streets, that's a different matter. Why that great Mason want to hurt you? N- not hurt, kill. What for? He want to do that? For helping plant a garden. The one over that lot used to be called Junkies Paradise. I have this friend, Rosie Alkai. She's big on the church tip. She was sick of all the junkies in the lot across from her apartment. She says she was more than sick. She was incensed about it. She prayed on it. Next morning, she put on her gloves and borrowed a rake 
and started piling up all the trash. A few of us saw her and started pitching in and cleaning up the lot. When all the trash and whatnot was just a big heap, we burned it up. A day later, we started planting a garden. And when it started to grow, the junkies just moved on up the way, on the edge to where the dice men's turf is and the Black Rebels' turf. I'm the only one Greg, Greg Mason recognized. That's why he's after you? Yeah, beauty can change a place. Yeah, Greg said I was messing up his business. <laughs> Y'all put a lot of love in that place. Yeah, Greg said he was going to kill me, going to cut me up. <laughs> like you liable to do. <laughs> I don't draw blood from friends. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm one of them. You are. But that don't help me with Greg Mason. Who knows? It might. It just might. Now, the gangsters were furious that Detroit Blue killed Robbie Collins, but they all were too scared of the killer to do anything about it. Detroit scared everybody. The word on the street was they wanted him dead, but nobody wanted to mess with him. So in the end, they divvied up Robbie Collins' territory and called it a done deal. In the big city, Detroit Blue could disappear in the small nooks and crannies of the Negro world and stand unseen in the dark places regular folks were afraid of in the light. But this time, he wasn't far enough. He needed some distance from... Don't tell Mommy. He would carry that act of murder forever. Aimlessly, Detroit Blue bought a ticket to somewhere, anywhere down south. He boarded a train bound for Mississippi. I think I got people down there. When he was a boy, Detroit remember hearing rumors about where his papa was from, a place called Ovette, Mississippi. Yes, maybe he still had people down there. A chance for a different kind of life. Now, the train routes only took Detroit so far to Laurel, Mississippi. A bus carried him closer to Ovette. A Negro tenant farmer saw him walking down the road and gave him a lift in the back of his mule-drawn wagon. The farmer told him all the dark folks near Ovette knew the old blues farm, the farm that sat out there in the deep woods. The man sat him out and pointed the direction of the farm. Detroit dropped him a few coins for his help. And he still had to walk a mile or two, but it was fine because in the city, he walked all night, six or seven days a week. The air was different down here in Mississippi. It was fresher and calmer. Not paying attention to the road, Detroit nearly stepped on an old copperhead trying to cross the road. The snake stopped for a moment, then hurried away. Perhaps the snake felt he was in the presence of a true killer and wanted to slither away to safety. Detroit almost sighed, but decided not to. He had stayed his hand twice in the last so many days, but maybe he was changing or not. He turned and shot the snake's head off before he reached the bushes on the other side of the road. It was a hot, wet kind of heat that stuck to his skin as he walked down the old dirt road a road that suddenly came to an end. Hidden away behind a lump clump of trees was a homestead. His instincts were still high as he followed the path to a farmhouse. His hand was on his gun in the small of his back as he neared the house. An old grizzly man was sitting on the porch with a familiar kind of look about him. Detroit didn't know from where or from when, but he knew that old man. You Oscar's boy? <laughs> it was a question, but it bore the more of a statement. Oscar was Detroit's papa. How you know? Cause you looks like I, want, I did when I was young, before I got this gut. I'm your grandpappy, boy. <laughs> hey, Melissa, uh, listen, Oscar's boy just walked up. 
out of the house wearing this dark brown woman with long black hair, salted with a little up here and a dare with gray. Melissa, first name was Melissa, but over the years the old man had shortened it to Lissa. Your papa? He's been dead a long time, stabbed playing bones. What's your name be? Dechi- Alvin, ma'am. I'm Alvin, too. Oscar named him after you. Look at this baby. <laughs> Lil Alvin. Detroit didn't know at the time, but he had found some things that was missing from his life, a connection to family and love. Maybe if I had them in my life, I wouldn't be a killer of a child. Detroit smiled weakly at his grandparents and prayed they would never discover the monster he, Detroit Blue, truly was. Down here in Mississippi, he was simply city boy, Little Alvin. It was his grandmama who called him Little Alvin, and he liked it, though he was nearly a head taller with broader shoulders than his grandfather. And the right of it was, Detroit's true name was Alvin Blue, just like his grandfather. Pretty close in the custom of the white folks, they never really looked at him closely, just enough to think of him as old Alvin, and they called him boy. They thought he was his grandfather, even all the difference in height and size, and the fact that Little Alvin was nearly 40 years younger. But in truth, they looked alike, stood alike, walked alike, and they both were strong. And the two of them probably laughed alike too, but city boy, little Alvin, never laughed, just smiled. And that smile was just like Big Alvin. Mississippi offered fresh food, pristine water from a well, and clean air, and rich in the joy of his grandpappy's laughter. The memory of that other fella up north started to fade, and the more little album came into being. Yes. Yes, I'm little Alvin. I'm just little Alvin. Grandma, Lisa, and Big Alvin told him about his papa with all the love they had for him. So much, so much he felt that he was getting to know his papa through their eyes and through their hearts. Now, old Alvin Blue was one of those rare farmers that owned his own land. It was a small plot, maybe 10 acres or so, but it was his. And the man worked every inch of his land because to him, it was alive. And so he nourished it in that way. Down here gave him lots of hard work. Little Alvin saw his grandma smiling, grandpa smiling. City boy out here in these fields, you don't know who you from or who you with. But that all right, I'll teach you. I'll teach you what you needs to know. That's all I has. <laughs> Big Alvin understood farming. Somebody used to know, knew about killing. Grandpa Big Alvin knew the land, the crops, and even the moisture in the air. Little Alvin marveled at what this old man who knew about the earth, how he could plant other crops to give back to the earth so his cash crop would be strong in the following years. The city boy would suffer through grueling farm work to be with these happy old folks who loved him. Happy years as little Alvin seemed to dance away. Eight happy years to be exact. The year was 1942. A day like any other day, his grandpa smiled and laughed. Love y'all. See you in a bit. He went into town and never came home. Little Alvin went looking for him that night and through the next day. He asked the color folks and they said they'd help and go looking for him. And they did. When little Alvin asked white folks, they smiled and nodded. <laughs> he probably drunk somewhere. <laughs> Big Alvin never touched alcohol. And a few of them, the white boys, had something cynical behind their snickers. We ain't never seen no nigga. 
A little more than a week had passed, and when some colored folks found his grandpa, well, what was left of him, he was hanged in an oak tree, all burnt up. But talk was that night they lynched him. That old Alvin Blue. It wasn't what he's done, the deed was done, because Klan wanted to remind these niggas coming back from the war who was still in charge. Though little Alvin thought it was more the fact that Big Alvin owned his own land. And some white folks had been crying and eyeing that land for some time. Yeah, that stuff played into it. You want to play, you bastards? Thought little Alvin, and he didn't know who had spoken those words. In the whisper of white folks, he heard that old Alvin fought like a cornered wildcat. He tore up some stuff, killing two of them. Clan boys in the process. That was before they got his wrist bound and beat him and mangled his old body. They strung him up, and they set him on fire. They set that sweet man on fire. The tri- Little Alvin. Grandma lets her soul to drain out of her with the murder of her loving husband, her big Alvin. She babbled on for a few days and died in the arms of little Alvin. Little Alvin cried as he held her, and then he thought about his mama dying in front of him. In that stupid hospital, and that bastard that stabbed my papa, and something else. The memory is somebody else. <sighs> Turning over a knife. Oh no, it won't stop. It won't stop. Don't tell mommy. He remembered the little girl, some nigga named Detroit Blue Kill. And he could see and hear a mama cries. Stop crying, he heard in a clear whisper. Dee, somebody was driven sane. That's not me, it's not. The well, hell it ain't. Little Alvin buried his dear grand folks with love and so much dignity that they were all moved. But a change were brewing. He could feel it crawling up the knack, nap of his neck. <laughs> they done stirred up some stuff. They ain't got no idea who they messing with. No idea at all. You used to come in every other week for your touch-up. You got something cooking, Mr. Er- Mr. Yeah, Eric? Yeah, yeah, I want to look good for my mommy. In case I get killed. This Greg Mason, good at his word? Yeah, he killed a brother. Because he had big eyes. And Greg said dude's eyes rubbed him the wrong way. Who you got watching who comes up on you? I don't want nobody getting killed over me. I ain't nobody but old Barber, but I'll watch your back, young Mr. Eric. <laughs> Definitely don't want a good friend like you killed, Mr. Troy. You ain't going to get killed. And, uh, or no, nor you, if I can help it. <laughs> The law of the jungle, some folks get away with everything. Greg Mason and them clan folks, they get away with everything. Do they? And a few weeks after the funerals, the whispers started spreading about old Alvin Blue coming back from being murdered to haunt them. Who did the deed? On a moonless night, they voiced fears. It was 1943 was a good year for death and by killing in Detroit, Michigan. The murder rate seemed to be higher than that year, higher than it had been in the last eight years. Officials thought it was because of the war and trained killers starting to come home. In a sense, they were right. Detroit Blue had come home. In the darkest corner of this old city, money changed hands for murders. Rumors spread that Detroit Blue was back. <laughs> it was said that Detroit killed only the evil and account of his need for restitution for the murder of a child that last looked in a girl's dying eyes. In the shadows of the seedier parts of the big city, Detroit Blue plotted and waited until the time was right. 
just right to exact his revenge. The KKK had a busy year as well, lynching black dark folks all over the South. Detroit Blue waited. Over two years passed since the last Jamboree had never thought they had had one in the woods near Ovet, Mississippi, though they had killed and cooked a nigger nearby. It's about time for another lesson in nigger killing. Now I am Donald Lee Conway, Grand Wizard, and I say we'll put this album Blue Ghost Mask to rest. They caught some nigger boy about 15 or 16 years ago. That boy was crying and begging for his life. The boy's tears merged with the blood from his battered face. The boy's left ear was hanging on just by a thread of flesh. They were going to lynch him at the climax of the night. They were near the end of the festivities, and the Grand Wizard, Don Lee, had set about his grand testimony. Now, these niggas going to war, now that's all right. But these niggas coming back home, well, that's different. That was kind of electricity charging the atmosphere. Then a flash of lightning cut through the air, like God was making a comment on it. It started raining, then pouring like divine plan of what was coming to repair the earth for all the blood that could soak into it. More lightning cracked across the sky and thunder rolled in the heavens. Justice would be dealt that night, and the instrument of restitution was in the form of Detroit Blue. The man, if you could call him that, looked like Death himself, dressed in a dark red shirt and dark blue tie and suit. Detroit Midnight Blue steps and leaned on his head in an ominous way, but it was the look in his eyes that told of the murder that ruled his heart. There were no innocent folks here. They all lived in their own hate and would die in the fire of Detroit Blue Fury. No one really knew at first, but on a big crack of lightning lit up the sky to reveal dead bodies here and there. The nigga boy was gone. Somebody must have cut him loose. Once the clamor set in, it was clear the sound was something else. That thunder, it was the sound of a tummy gun cutting through the air and flesh. They heard screaming, saw their fellow clansmen wounded, lying dead in the mud. A few men started shooting back in the darkness where they thought they saw the flashpoint of a gun. Or was it lightning? Some, classmen, some clanmen died by the fire of other clanmen. This shooter seemed to be part of the darkness. It made him an elusive target. The gunfire would cease in one place and pick up in somewhere else. All who were able to sought protection behind trees and something rocky. None of the places helped. It was a death in the muddy muck of misery. The KKK had operated without impunity until this night, and death fell on them for all its righteousness. Much of the living just wallowed in the blood, mud and prayed for God to save them. The very same God that victims prayed to before they were lynched. Grand Wizard Donald Lee was on his knees as if to appeal to a higher power. And through the muddy, bloody mud, Detroit Blue was suddenly stood over him and yanked off his hood. In the midnight, Donald Lee looked up. Well, we lynched you, boy. As quick as a cat, Detroit Blue carved a cross in old Donald Lee's forehead. Came back to give you a little portion of hell. For all the hell you delivered to us dark folk at a whim. Old Alvin faded into the darkness of the woods. That Alvin, that old nigga, that, 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 that old nigga, Alvin Blue. We, we lynched you last year, boy. Alvin Blue, we killed you just last year. 
We ain't never gonna do nothing or say nothing about this night. You hear? Yeah. After I the, hear you. After the clan, never had the same taste in their mouth, at least not that part of Mississippi. Legend tells that if the clan comes in that part of Mississippi, old Alvin Blue comes back and cuts their throats. Over the years, Old Blue's farm fell in disrepair, and the land outgrew. A white fella bought up Old Alvin's land on a cheap from the county, but sold it a few months later for less. He said that was an evil presence on the land. Maybe Detroit Blue died from the wounds he sustained that night with the Klan. We'll never know. He was never seen. But that don't mean he ain't there or here. Some folks said Detroit Blue come back north and just became regular people. <laughs> you telling me Detroit Blue's still around? I ain't saying nothing. I'm just telling you a story. <sighs> How's that look? Whew. That story's great. That was the stuff, Troy. I mean, Mr. Troy. Best shave ever. And best story you ever told, damn sure. Hey, little Eric. Don't worry. I have a feeling it'll be all right. I'm not so sure about that. But I'm sure it'll look good for my mama. You a good friend, Troy. You are too, young Eric. You are too. That was a pause in the air as the old barber ran a finger down a barely visible scar running from his temple to his nose. And then he called out, Next! A few days later, the police found the bodies of that gang, the Dice Men, and their leader, that Greg Mason, all cut up and stabbed to death. Some said it was a rival gang, the Black Rebels. But young Eric Thurdo whispered to himself, Detroit Blue. You just heard Destination Freedom, The Legend of Detroit Blue, written by Hugo Sales, produced and directed by Daniel Betts. This episode is written and produced in the spirit of the original series, Destination Freedom by Richard Durham. Our cast was Daniel Betts at Troy, Panama Sueto as Eric and Detroit Blue, Fate going Simmons as the wrong target, and Greg Ward as all those other folks. <laughs> and now coming up next, our musical guest, Mr. Lionel Young, who you heard playing throughout the show. We're honored to have him here again with Destination Freedom. As we celebrate our 20 years, he was with us at our very first show. Welcome back, Lionel. Thank you. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. All right. Well, you're sounding good. Thank you. Uh, Absolutely. You're looking good. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I look good for radio, right? (laughs) (laughs) I can see it. All right. Beautiful. So what do you want to start us off with? Uh... Thing about everybody getting together. Okay. Everybody come together, we're gonna have a real good time. Everybody get together, ooh, have a real good time. Play that blues and boogie woogie, play it for you right on time. Well, you got the young and old feeling all right. Come together, KG, and you shake it up all night. Everybody come together, have a real good time. Play that blues and boogie boogie. Play it for you right on time. Right on time. 
Everybody clap your hand together, don't you be a slug. If the spirit boot, you get up and cut a rug. Everybody come together, gonna have a real good time. Play that blues and boogie boogie. Play it for you right on time. told 
She said, go home, son, look through your, your keyhole. You know, the gypsy woman told me that I'm my mother's bad luck child. Well, she said, you're having a good time now, son, but there's going to be trouble after a while. There's trouble, trouble, trouble. Well, I went back home, did what the gypsy woman said, looked through that keyhole, saw another man in my bed. You know, the gypsy woman told me that I'm my mother's bad luck child. Yes, he said, you're having a good time now, but there's going to be trouble after a while. Trouble. There's going to be trouble after a while. Trouble, trouble. Trouble follow me to my grave. I'm looking for trouble. I know trouble's looking for me. Pass my cast all my doubt in the deep blue sea. Well, my trouble coming through strong. Well, my trouble, my trouble's got nipples as big as my thumb, got some between the legs. Make a dead man come looking for trouble. No trouble looking for me. No trouble looking for me. I got my trouble right here. I hope it don't find me too soon.
man, you know, we live in some strange times right here. Good we're here, because we might all be a witness. Because, you know, right now, things aren't going so well, because there's a devil in the White House. <laughs> the dark legend. <laughs> That's why our blues won't go away. Yeah, there's a devil in the White House. That's why blues won't go away. Well, it's a feeling that keeps getting stronger as we come to this impeachment day. <laughs> Can't you see out there's a brave new world? Whole country, whole world in an uproar. Brave new world out there. A whole country, whole world in an uproar. We're all standing at the crossroads. We're all standing at the crossroads. And don't know which way to go. You got to look before you leap to land on solid ground when you need your friends the most. That's the time they let you down, they let you down. Brave new world outside. Whole country, whole world in an uproar. We're all standing at the crossroads. Don't know which way to go. Don't know which way to go. Gotta get up early in the morning. Gotta stay on the ball. There's some folks out there waiting on your downfall. Brave new world out there. Whole country, whole world in an uproar. We're all standing at the crossroads. Don't know which way to go. Don't know which way to go. Don't know which way we're gonna go. All, all of us lost. Don't know which way we're gonna go. Lionel, uh, you know, let's, you've been playing for quite some time now. So um, you started playing violin at, you said, five years old? I was six. Six, okay. I started piano when I was five. Ah, okay, all right. Yeah. But then you were sharing with me off, off mic that you also was uh, an athlete. 
Uh-huh. And so you uh, you decided to go the musical route. Yeah, yeah. I had a chance to go to uh, uh, fo play football uh, in, uh, in college. A small chance, but a chance. Okay. And uh, when that didn't work out, uh, I, I, I just... Uh, I could get a, I got a music scholarship. Oh, see, beautiful. And uh, so uh, I said, okay, I guess I'm gonna be a musician. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I haven't looked back that much since, except for occasions when I get asked about it. <laughs> you know, uh, well, we don't want you to look back. We want you to look forward. I'm looking because, forward. Yeah, it's just an amazing uh, career that you had and continue to have. We're just honored that you decided to be with us again tonight. You've been with us several times throughout our journey here on uh, Destination Freedom, so we're honored once again that you continue to be with us on our journey. So thank well, thank you, you Donnie. Right. What, uh, what are we going to hear next? Uh-oh, uh switching to the guitar. Okay. I switched a little bit. Uh, changed my clothes. Got a new outfit on. I hope you like it. I do. I love it. It's a, a, a little bit of guitar. You know, there's a fire on the mountain. Uh, look out down below. There's a fire on the mountain, look out down below. Soon come those people living in those mountains where have no place else to go. Did you see that smoke rising high into the sky? Did you see that smoke rising high into the sky? Smoke keeps rising higher. Smoke keeps rising high and higher. Maybe we could all do, rain, do a rain dance and put an end to this drought. And the sacred rain will fall down and Put this fire out. There's a fire on the mountain. Look out down below. There'll be people living in those mountains that have nowhere else to go.
Look, see there's a fire on the mountain. Can you see? There's a full moon out there with a lunar eclipse. Did you see that full moon out there with a lunar eclipse? Oh, when I see that fire on the mountain, it's like the dawning of the park. Apocalypse. And you see there's a fire on that mountain. Can you we must look out down below? There's a fire on the mountain. Look out down. Soon come the people living on the mountain Will have nowhere else to go Have nowhere else to go Everybody should treat a stranger right Freedom. 
We're very excited that uh, he's here with us tonight. We're very excited to be in his 20th year of doing Destination Freedom. Again, we want to thank Mr. Lionel Young for bringing his flavor, his soul, uh, and everything that he has for us. Again, it's Donnie Betts. I'm a producer director of Destination Freedom. I have been ever since we started some um, 20 years ago, and we're very excited to be here. You can get more information about the show at nocredits.com, nocredits.com. Uh, hit us up on Instagram, all those things that I'm just getting familiar with, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those things we have now too. So we hope if you would be in contact with us that way. Again, thank you. Thank you, Lionel. Thank you. Thank the cast and crew. Uh, thank Mr. Rob G for coming in and doing the video for us. You can uh, hit him up at uh, Optimum Films uh, at any time. He's an amazing cinematographer and uh, one of my good friends and uh, hip-hop head uh, and all that kind of good stuff. But um, he, does, he does his thing, and we're really happy. Okay? Again, thank you for being with us. Destination Freedom. Follow us on Facebook at No Credits Production, LLC. Twitter at Donnie Betts, at Black Radio Days. On Instagram, hashtag No Credits Production, LLC. And please check out our YouTube channel, No Credits Production, LLC. This is Donnie Betts, and next time, listen for episode three, we hear the tale of the bullet. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.